Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On December 31, 1989, a tipster contacted the ATF, or Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. The tipster advised agents to go to a barn located at 8671 Chardon Road in Kirtland, Ohio. There, the bodies of the missing Avery family could be found buried in the dirt. By January 3rd, local police had secured a warrant and were able to follow up on the tip. After digging through piles of rocks and garbage, the police found suspiciously soft dirt below. They eventually unearthed the bodies of Dennis Avery, his wife Cheryl, and their daughters, 15-year-old Trina, 13-year-old Rebecca, and 7-year-old Karen. The prosecutor's chief assistant in Kirtland later recalled not only the terrible smell in the barn, but the reaction of the local police. He said, quote, There were some pretty seasoned law enforcement officers there that day, and I remember the effect it had on them when it was clear the children had been murdered, too. End quote. Everyone already knew who was responsible. His name was Jeffrey Lundgren, and he was convinced he had the power of God. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. Today we're taking a deep dive into the Kirtland cult. Originally an offshoot of the Mormon church, leader Jeffrey Lundgren eventually convinced his followers to commit mass murder for him. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. A lot of you have asked how you can help support the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. The Kirtland Cult was started by Jeffrey Lundgren in Kirtland, Ohio, in 1987. The cult eventually numbered up to 20 adults and their children, with some of them moving into Lundgren's home at 8671 Chardon Road. Lundgren formed the cult around his new interpretation of scripture, eventually convincing his followers that he was God's last prophet. The cult ended after Lundgren coerced his followers into murdering the Avery family which led to his arrest January 7, 1990, and eventual execution by lethal injection on October 24, 2006. In part one of our two-part series, we'll focus on Jeffrey Lundgren himself, his background, psyche, and how he turned from a troubled child into a cult leader. In part two, we'll broaden our focus from Lundgren to the cult he founded, known as the Kirtland Cult. We'll learn about what the cult believed, how Lundgren used mind control to instill fear in his followers, and how the cult eventually ended in the murder of an entire family. Jeffrey Lundgren was born on May 3, 1950, in Independence, Missouri. His parents were named Donald and Lois, and he had one younger brother. The family was well off financially and were members of the RLDS Church, which stands for Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. To understand Lundgren's story, we need to understand a little bit about the religion he grew up in. There are many splinter groups under the general banner of Mormonism. 
the largest of which is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or LDS. These groups all differ in their specifics, but are united in the belief that a man named Joseph Smith, who was born in Vermont in 1805, was a prophet of God. They believe that Smith, through God's inspiration, wrote the Book of Mormon, which includes new biblical teachings. Mormons regard the Book of Mormon as part of their scripture, in addition to the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. Mormons also believe in something called continuous revelation, which Joseph Lundgren would later use for his own purposes. Continuous revelation is the idea that God or his divine agents continue to interact with humans through revelations. These revelations can come in the form of influence by the Holy Ghost, visions, or visitations by divine agents like angels and prophets. This Mormon ideology has positive and negative consequences. While it means that God can feel quite present in everyday life, it also means that anyone can claim to have been visited by God or even be a prophet. Some of the different splits within the Mormon religion have come from disagreements over whether or not someone is or isn't a prophet of God. In fact, one such disagreement led to the formation of the RLDS. By the 1830s, Joseph Smith had amassed several hundred followers in both Kirtland, Ohio, and Independence, Missouri. Kirtland was where Mormons in the Midwest had initially gathered. But Smith claimed that independence was where the Mormons should establish Zion, because that's where Christ would make his second coming. But not everyone was welcoming of the settlers. In 1834, when Mormons in independence were facing persecution from non-believers, Smith made an important prophecy. Smith claimed that God had visited him and said, quote, I will raise up unto my people a man who shall lead them, like as Moses led the children of Israel, end quote. When Smith died in 1844, most of his followers pledged their allegiance to Brigham Young, who led the Mormons to Salt Lake Valley in present-day Utah. But Smith's widow, Emma, stayed behind with her three children. Those who stayed with her believed that one of Joseph Smith's descendants should become the new prophet. Eventually, Smith's son, Joseph Smith III, took up the mantle. This faction of Mormons eventually evolved into the RLDS Church. As Jeffrey Lundgren's parents were well-regarded members of the RLDS Church, they would have believed completely in Joseph Smith's teachings. Don was even a church elder, but Jeffrey was not always a believer. He's quoted as saying, I would sit there on Sundays and people would be in tears talking about the Lord's presence and his love and all these strange events that they claimed happened to them, and I would think that something was wrong with me because I felt absolutely nothing and nothing had happened to me like what they were describing. I was stone cold to all the emotional drivel. Although Jeffrey's parents enjoyed good standing in the community, Jeffrey's home life was far from perfect. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Greg. Jeffrey described his mother Lois as cold and controlling, more worried about her appearance than her children's welfare. He claimed that, quote, I always had to fight for affection, and my parents' love was always conditional. It was always used as a reward and taken away as a punishment when I was inadequate. Lois fits the standard profile of a narcissistic parent, seeing her children as an extension of herself rather than as autonomous creatures. 
She was highly concerned with how she was perceived, so she controlled her children's behavior to maintain a perfect public image. According to psychologist Dr. Eleanor Greenberg with the New York Institute for Gestalt Therapy, children of narcissists frequently grow up to be narcissists themselves, and though Jeffrey might not have done so consciously, we'll later see him using the same techniques to control his followers that his mother used on him. And Jeffrey's relationship with his father doesn't sound any more positive. No. Jeffrey's father was a tough alpha male who liked to claim that he had to earn everything he got and couldn't stand laziness in others. Jeffrey said, quote, No matter what I did, I never felt I was man enough for him. I always wanted an I love you, but what I got was male-on-male competition, end quote. Life at school didn't provide much of a reprieve for Jeffrey. He had a couple of friends, but was generally awkward around his peers and wasn't popular. A classmate of his recalled that, quote, You felt sorry for him until you started talking to him, and then he realized that he was arrogant. No one really liked him, end quote. Nevertheless, Jeffrey set his mind to bulking up, perhaps to impress his father, and by his senior year, he was strong and athletic enough to play shortstop for the baseball team. After high school, Jeffrey attended Central Missouri State University, located in Warrensburg, Missouri. The school is secular, but had a large number of Mormon students, as it's located just an hour from Independence, where Smith foretold Christ would reappear. A two-story house bordering the campus had even been renovated by the RLDS Church and made into a student union. That's where Jeffrey met his future wife, Alice Keeler, when she was still a senior in high school and visiting a friend on campus. She can remember exactly what he looked like the first time she saw him. She said, quote, He was dressed in a neatly pressed white short-sleeved shirt with tiny, thin blue and yellow pinstripes. He was also wearing brown penny loafers and no socks. Can you believe it? He wasn't wearing any socks, end quote. Despite Alice's shock over Jeffrey's fashion choices, she was immediately interested in him. Even when she later heard from another young woman that Jeffrey had taken her out on a date, only to get her drunk and try to take advantage of her, Alice remained convinced that Jeffrey was the one for her. Jeffrey's sexual aggression may be an early sign of his narcissistic personality. Narcissists believe normal rules don't apply to them, and they're entitled to take what they want. In this case, Jeffrey felt entitled to a woman's body. The next year, when Alice started as a freshman at Central Missouri, she ran into Jeffrey again. In some ways, Jeffrey was still as awkward as he was in high school, and one of his friends had to ask Alice out on a date for him. Alice accepted, and the two went on a date to a friend's picnic. Around a campfire on the night of the picnic, they discussed their lives, telling each other about their pasts. Unlike Jeffrey, Alice came from a poor family and had low self-esteem, but still, they hit it off sharing a background in the RLDS church and perhaps a conviction that they were both special, meant for something greater. Even though Alice had grown up poor, she was incredibly spoiled by her family. Her sister recalled about her, quote, Alice always wanted to be the center of attention. She loved being in the spotlight. And at church, she was on center stage, end quote. Alice was a true believer in the teachings of the RLDS church. She even believed that she had an encounter as a teenager with the devil, which left her momentarily paralyzed. It wasn't until she called out Christ's name that she was able to move again. When she recounted her ordeal at church, her bout with the devil only made her more liked and respected. One of the church's elders even told Alice that God had given him a message about her future husband. 
He said, quote, You shall marry a companion whom I have prepared to bring forth my kingdom, and he shall be great in the eyes of these people, and shall do much good unto the children of men. For I have prepared him to bring forth a marvelous work and wonder. End quote. To Alice, this message was an extension of Joseph Smith's 1834 prophecy. Her future husband would be the Moses-like prophet that would help usher in the second coming of Christ. Her sister was more skeptical about Alice's claims, saying, quote, I'm not certain Alice knows sometimes the difference between the truth and lies. Alice has always been able to convince herself that whatever she wants to believe is the truth and nothing else matters. She was that way about religion and that way about her life, end quote. The night of Alice and Jeffrey's first date, Jeffrey didn't show the propensity toward violence that Alice's friend had observed. Instead, he walked her to her door and asked her if he could give her a kiss goodnight. She said yes. Later that night, alone in her dorm room, Alice was convinced that not only was Jeffrey the man she'd marry, he was also the prophet that Joseph Smith had foretold. Jeffrey was just as smitten with Alice as she was with him, perhaps obsessively so. But Alice didn't seem to mind. Even in just the first week of dating, his romantic overtures were already mixed with controlling instructions. He would shower her with roses and escort her to and from class, but he would also tell her when to sleep and what to wear. Behavior that might have made other women feel threatened only made Alice feel special. Once in a freshman chemistry class, Alice saw Jeffrey spying on her through a window, just staring at her. Nevertheless, Alice said, quote, He's fascinating. He's handsome. He's athletic. He's everything that I have ever thought the perfect man should be, and he is crazy about me, end quote. Alice was right about Jeffrey's feelings. Just one week after their first date, Jeffrey asked Alice to marry him, telling her he was already in love with her. Jeffrey's obsession with Alice could be traced back to his insecure attachment to his parents. According to psychologist Dr. Lisa Firestone, director of research and education at the Glendon Association, an insecure attachment occurs when a child doesn't feel safe with narcissistic parents because of their emotional abuse. As a result, the child can develop an anxious attachment with other people later in life. With an anxious attachment, the person is trying to fulfill the connection he never had with his parents. Of course, the person will never truly find that fulfillment, leading him to pursue it more obsessively and aggressively. After their engagement, Jeffrey immediately pressured Alice into having sex with him. Even though in the RLDS church, you're not supposed to have sex until marriage, Alice wanted to please Jeffrey, so she agreed despite her feelings of shame. Alice felt that, quote, to him, it was a sign that I loved him and I wanted him to love me, end quote. But their marriage was by no means a sure thing. Alice was only 18 and Jeffrey was 19. And in Missouri in 1969, that meant that by law, Jeffrey needed his parents' permission. Jeffrey knew that his parents wouldn't like Alice due to her family's poverty and lack of status within the RLDS church. In the meantime, Jeffrey and Alice's obsession with each other was so intense that neither went to class much that semester. Alice was able to squeak by, but Jeffrey failed all of his classes during the fall of his sophomore year and flunked out of school entirely. When Jeffrey's family met Alice over winter break, Jeffrey's prediction turned out to be right. His family did hate Alice. But in the spring of 1970, Alice realized she was pregnant. Now Jeffrey had to marry her, even though his parents were furious about the situation. 
On May 5, 1970, Alice and Jeffrey, ages 18 and 19 respectively, got married at Alice's family's RLDS church in Odessa, Texas, presumably before her pregnancy began showing. Only one person attended the ceremony on Jeffrey's side, a friend from college. Jeffrey and Alice may have thought they were destined for great things, but after their wedding, they had to move into Alice's parents' house. Alice was pregnant, Jeffrey had flunked out of college, and with the Vietnam War in progress, it was only a matter of time before he was drafted. To try to avoid serving, Jeffrey enlisted in the Navy as part of a delayed entry program that didn't require him to report until the end of 1970. He hoped that by then, the war would be over. But in November of 1970, with the war still dragging on, Jeffrey had to report to training in San Diego and missed the birth of his first son, Damon Paul Lundgren. Damon helped repair Jeffrey's relationship with his parents, who did not want to be separated from the grandchild. Jeffrey's father even personally blessed Damon in their RLDS church in Independence. Jeffrey was assigned by the Navy to work in San Diego as an electrical repairman on the USS Sperry, so Alice and Damon moved with him to California. Their time there was happy, but neither Jeffrey nor Alice could figure out how to make life work on a budget. They both overspent and had to constantly ask their families for money. There were other problems in their marriage. Alice said Jeffrey was obsessed with sex, claiming, quote, he'd do it several times a day if I let him, and when we did it, he'd just want to satisfy himself, end quote. Again, Jeffrey is showing classic signs of narcissism. He's only focused on himself and sees sex as validation. Narcissists also tend to think they're much better in bed than they really are. In the spring of 1972, when Jeffrey was 21, he was assigned to a destroyer bound for Vietnam. Alice moved with Damon back to Jeffrey's parents' house. It was in Vietnam that Jeffrey reconnected with his religion. He studied the scripture every day, trying to figure out why God hadn't communicated with him like he had with others, including Alice. Then one day, his ship, the USS Shelton, came under fierce attack from the Vietnamese. Somehow, the ship withstood the bombardment. Jeffrey believed that he was responsible for the entire crew's survival. Quote, God had showed me a sign. He had protected the ship because he didn't want me to die in Vietnam. End quote. He hadn't had much use for the religion before, but if he could use it to make himself feel more special, then he was in. His narcissistic personality is being bolstered by the idea that he has been chosen. Jeffrey also remembered what Alice had told him about the prophecy regarding her future husband, and he started to think it could be true. He really was special. He could even be the prophet that his church had been waiting for. We'll examine what Lundgren did with his newfound religiosity after the break. Now, back to the story. In January of 1973, after surviving an attack by the Vietnamese and assuming full responsibility for his crew's survival, 22-year-old Jeffrey Lundgren returned to the U.S. as a decorated Navy crewman and dedicated Mormon. He had received excellent reviews from his superior officers and even considered staying in the Navy as a career, but he ultimately decided against it because of his obligation to his family. Jeffrey, Alice, and their son moved into the house of a family friend named Louise, who recalled Jeffrey's treatment of Alice during that time, saying, quote, I felt Jeffrey was in the process of making Alice into exactly what he wanted her to be. 
He wanted to control every part of her life, and she gave him that control in return for his love. End quote. Jeffrey was so controlling that Alice wasn't even able to use the phone without his permission. Jeffrey had become a full-fledged narcissist and needed Alice to be perfect so that she would reflect positively on him. Alice believed that Jeffrey's treatment of her was mandated by the Bible and that it was her job to serve him. She would often cite a passage from the New Testament that reads, quote, Let the women serve in silence with all subjection, for I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. End quote. Meanwhile, Jeffrey was sent out on two more tours, and during the last one in 1973, he first became aware of how persuasive he could be. He was bunkmates with a young man named Kevin Curry, who lived a risky, carefree lifestyle. When their ship would dock on land, Kevin would head straight for the nearest brothel. At first, Kevin thought Jeffrey was odd. He was so quiet and serious, always studying his scripture. But he gradually became curious about Jeffrey. When the ship returned to San Diego, he accompanied Jeffrey to dinner at home with Alice. There, Jeffrey told Kevin all about his RLDS beliefs and about an experience he'd had while at sea. He claimed that Satan had sent a cloud that grew into the shape of a hand, eventually almost pushing him overboard. Jeffrey cried out, My God, save me, deliver me, and the cloud disappeared. Jeffrey said that the only explanation for the occurrence was that, quote, the cloud was Satan and the forces of evil, and he was trying to kill me to keep me from doing something that God has chosen me to do. There has to be a reason why God is saving me and why Satan wants me dead, end quote. Whether Jeffrey believed this delusion or was consciously lying, we'll never know. Perhaps he told the lie so often he began to believe it himself. Kevin was fascinated. He ended up staying with the Lundgrens for a long time, and at the end of 1974, he was baptized. Jeffrey was soon discharged from the Navy and decided to return to Missouri, leaving Kevin behind, at least for the time being. But through his conversion of Kevin, Jeffrey had discovered his powers of persuasion. In 1974, at age 24, Jeffrey re-enrolled at Central Missouri State University. This time, he earned straight A's and became a leader of the fundamentalist Mormon faction of students. Under the direction of Joseph Smith's grandson, Wallace B. Smith, Mormonism had started modernizing, causing a rift in the RLDS church. Jeffrey was on the conservative side, which, among other things, believed that women had no place in the RLDS priesthood. By the fall of 1975, Jeffrey was so passionate about his beliefs that he decided he should join the priesthood himself and put his name up for consideration among the elders. Priesthood in the RLDS church isn't a full-time job like it is in the Catholic church. Priests in the RLDS church do most of their work on Sundays, but it is a sign of status to be appointed to the priesthood. Jeffrey was also asked to help teach a course at the university, even though he was still an undergraduate and had been able to buy a house with the help of a loan given to ex-service members. He and Alice had another child, a son named Jason. From the outside, Jeffrey Lundgren seemed to be living a perfect life. But behind the facade, Jeffrey was thousands and thousands of dollars in debt. Alice wasn't allowed to know anything about their finances, so she'd only found out when a bill collector had come to the house. Jeffrey blamed Alice for their money troubles, saying, quote, Alice became just like my mother. 
getting possessions, accumulating things, became extremely important to her. Alice and I were having a difficult time in our personal relationship, and she wanted physical manifestations from me that showed I loved her, end quote. Their friends and family later said that both were to blame for the debt, which by January 1977 reached $44,500. When adjusted for inflation, that amount would be almost $180,000 today. At the same time, Jeffrey mysteriously quit school, even though he had almost earned enough credits to graduate. Again, he blamed Alice, and Alice blamed him. Jeffrey said that Alice insisted he get a job to support them, while Alice said Jeffrey had been caught stealing money from the school. And in a final blow, Jeffrey was denied his priesthood in the RLDS church. Elders cited his emotional immaturity as the reason. Jeffrey was so angry that he dropped out of the RLDS church completely. If God communicated with him directly, what did he need the church for? Shortly after, in the spring of 1979, Alice became pregnant again. Jeffrey told Alice that he got a job with TWA, an airline, as part of the pre-flight inspection crew. But Alice began to notice some suspicious activity. Items from the house started disappearing, and Jeffrey never came home at the same time. Everything blew up when the police came to their house. It turned out Jeffrey had lied about the job. He hadn't been able to secure employment, but he needed to keep up his image, so he'd made it all up. Their rent was overdue, and Jeffrey had written a bad check for a gun he wanted to buy. He liked collecting guns because his father had a gun collection, and he wanted to amass a better collection than his dad. Jeffrey ended up being taken away by the police in handcuffs. By this time, Jeffrey and Alice's parents were tired of lending their children money, but Alice's mother still allowed the family of four to move back in with them. The family was about to expand. On Saturday, June 16, 1979, Alice gave birth to their third child, a daughter named Kristen. Jeffrey got a job in a hospital to support his family, and they rented an old farmhouse to live in. Jeffrey and Alice's marital problems continued. Jeffrey claimed that Alice was frigid, while Alice claimed that Jeffrey wanted her to do things sexually that made her uncomfortable, including defecating on her. In fact, Alice claimed that Jeffrey was fascinated by feces. A sexual fascination with feces is known as coprophilia. According to Nick Haslam, a professor of psychology at the University of Melbourne, many people have fetishes, which only become clinical issues if they interfere substantially with a person's life or cause distress. However, studies have shown that coprophilia has some correlation with sadomasochism, which is the giving or receiving of pain for pleasure. How does it tie in with Jeffrey's narcissism? Well, while narcissists feel the need to project a powerful, perfect image to the public, deep down, they feel worthless. Jeffrey might have asked Alice to engage in sexual acts in which she treated him as that worthless person. It might even have been cathartic for him, a chance to reveal how he truly felt inside. And why was Alice willing to put up with Jeffrey's sexual obsessions? It sounds like there might have been a couple reasons. First, Alice grew up in a religion that taught that women were supposed to serve men without question. Secondly, Jeffrey had been controlling and emotionally abusive for a long time. He likely didn't start out asking Alice for these sexual acts. He had to build up to them over the course of several years. Although disgusted by these fetishes, Alice agreed to participate in an effort to please her husband. But unfortunately for Alice, it still wasn't enough for Jeffrey. 
During this time, he had an affair with a woman who also worked at the hospital. At first, Alice blamed herself for his lapse. She thought that if she had been a more subservient wife, he never would have strayed. But eventually, her anger boiled to the surface, and the two got into a heated argument. The two disagree about how the fight started, but what happened next is a fact established in hospital records. Jeffrey threw Alice so hard against a doorknob that he ruptured her spleen. She had questioned his authority, so he needed to reestablish control. Jeffrey's abuse didn't stop there. While Alice was under painkillers and bedridden from her injury, Jeffrey had sex with her while she was nearly unconscious. Alice became pregnant again, eventually giving birth to their fourth and final child, Caleb Lundgren, in September 1980. Throughout this time, even after his arrest, Jeffrey had continued to write bad checks. Finally, they were kicked out of the farmhouse and had to return to Alice's parents' house. When their landlord came to look over the farmhouse and see what condition the Lundgrens had left it in, he was shocked. Jeffrey had stolen some of his personal items that had been kept in the garage, but that was far from the worst of it. In the basement, Jeffrey had cut through a sewage pipe so that everything from the toilet on the first floor emptied directly onto the basement floor. He recalled, quote, There was a pile of human waste at least one foot deep and six feet in diameter, End quote. Additionally, he found magazines with sadomasochistic photos in a closet, along with a plastic dildo caked with feces. Even if we knew what that was for, we would spare the details. The landlord also found books about the RLDS church all over the farmhouse, and he couldn't understand how Jeffrey could have two such different sides to his personality. The landlord said, quote, He wanted to be liked, he wanted to be admired, yet he didn't want to do anything to earn you liking him. At the same time, I also never knew anyone who thought so much of himself. He simply looked upon himself as someone who was unique, you know, special, and he felt people needed to treat him special, end quote. Jeffrey was later fired from the hospital after he and his mistress were caught messing around in the office. He told Alice he had decided to quit. By February 1981, Jeffrey had gained and lost several more jobs, He was living in Independence, Missouri, so that he could look for work, while Alice was living with her parents and taking care of their four kids. When Jeffrey visited Alice, she would indulge his interest in coprophilia and bondage because she wanted to make him happy, though she said it made her uncomfortable. Finally, in 1982, Jeffrey got a steady job in Independence as a biomedical technician. Alice and the kids moved there to join him, and Jeffrey was finally able to pay off all the bad checks he had written. His criminal record was expunged, and for the first time in a while, the couple had disposable income. Jeffrey decided to spend it on rifles, again trying to build up his collection to better his father. Jeffrey and Alice reconnected with old friends in Independence, one of whom invited the couple to a Bible study class on the Book of Mormon. The class was taught by a man named Ray Treat, who taught his pupils that it wasn't enough to read or even memorize the scripture. Jeffrey said, quote, you needed to examine each individual word and discover its meaning. When you did that, you could actually see God's thought process. From that point on, no one could keep me away from church. I had to know more, end quote. Jeffrey decided to give the RLDS priesthood another try. But through his time in the army and his conversion of Kevin Curry, he now understood the importance of personal relationships. He took some time to network and cozied up to church elders. 
volunteering for any odd job the church needed done. But friends thought that Jeffrey and Alice were motivated by something other than religious zeal. One friend said, quote, Jeff and Alice were anxious to get prestige. They didn't have it. They wanted it, end quote. While Jeffrey's plans were progressing smoothly at church, his work life returned to the same pattern. Jeffrey was fired from his job as a biomedical technician and then two other jobs, all for stealing. He would never hold a paying job again. After this break, we'll track the beginnings of the Kirtland cult and their path to murder. Now back to the story. At the end of 1982, Jeffrey and Alice met a couple at their church named Jim and Laura Robbins. After Jim was diagnosed with stomach cancer a few years previously, he and his wife had become devout Mormons. Jim had never met anyone who could match his knowledge of Scripture until he met Jeffrey. A small number of devout Mormons, including Jim, believe in communal living. Some early Mormons had practiced it for a time, though it never lasted for very long. Jim was so impressed with Jeffrey that he thought they should give it a try. And in February 1982, Jim told Jeffrey and Alice that he and Laura would financially support them. At the time, Jim didn't realize that Jeffrey and Alice were already being supported by numerous other church members through a fund meant for poor Mormons. In fact, they had such a surplus of goods donated to them that a friend recalled coming to the house and seeing their front porch completely covered in grocery bags full of food. When the friends questioned Alice about it, Alice replied, quote, Jeff had things to do for God, and therefore he wasn't required to work like everyone else. Other people were supposed to take care of him. That was their job. He was to serve God, end quote. Although Alice was subservient to Jeffrey, we can see that she was also benefiting from his status. She wasn't working either and seemed to feel entitled to other people's help and money. After Jim began to bankroll the Lundgrens, he and Jeffrey became obsessed with one passage in the Book of Mormon. In it, God says he has revealed to Joseph Smith and another Mormon great and marvelous works, but he doesn't specify what they were. God had let his prophets see these works after the two had prayed in Kirtland, Ohio. So Jeffrey and Jim decided they would go to the Kirtland Temple and pray to be shown the same works. The Kirtland Temple was the first structure of its kind to be built by the followers of Joseph Smith. He oversaw its construction himself, and the church was first used in 1836. Joseph Smith claimed to have several visions there, and it's considered a sacred space for Mormons. Once there, Jeffrey and Jim prayed in private in the temple for half an hour, but nothing happened. Jim decided that he was arrogant to think that God would show him the same thing he'd shown Joseph Smith. Jeffrey, however, surprised Jim by standing up and praying out loud for Jim to be cured of his stomach cancer. What happened next differs according to Jim and Jeffrey. In Jim's account, they went to a nearby diner where Jim felt sick and had to return home. In Jeffrey's account, God had told Jeffrey that he could either cure Jim's cancer or be shown the great works that Joseph Smith had described. It was Jeffrey's choice. Jeffrey proudly reported that he had chosen Jim to be cured, and therefore he was. Jim's cancer was in remission, but he wasn't convinced that it was due to Jeffrey's sacrifice. Jeffrey told everyone else in the church his version of the story anyway. Jim and his wife became uncomfortable with Jeffrey's claims. And in the summer of 1983, they decided that they could no longer financially support him. 
Nevertheless, Jeffrey was ordained in the RLDS priesthood in October 1983, at 33 years old. For his first sermon, he read a series of Bible verses about how God would punish the wicked. Members of the church complained about the violent imagery he used, and Jeffrey wasn't invited to preach again. Shortly after, the Lundgren's first son, Damon, was injured when he tripped and broke a rib. The rib punctured his liver, and he needed emergency surgery. When Alice told Jeffrey that she wanted to stay in the hospital with him instead of going home, Jeffrey became enraged because he felt Alice wasn't paying enough attention to him. He raped Alice on the floor of their bathroom. According to Jeffrey, it wasn't possible for a husband to rape a wife because she only exists to please him, even though rape is clearly morally and legally wrong. But for Alice, this was the last straw. She threatened divorce. But Jeffrey knew how to keep Alice in the marriage. He claimed that on the night that Damon was injured, he had a vision of Christ dying on the cross. He said that he walked up to the cross, looked into Christ's eyes, and that, quote, I saw everything, and I was aware I was in his head and in his consciousness, and I could see all things, all eternity, from the beginning of time to the present, into the future. I felt his pure and total love, and I understood that there was no anger in him at all." End quote. Alice believed Jeffrey and decided once and for all that she could never leave him, because according to Jeffrey, quote, God is preparing me for something. He is directing both our lives, end quote. Despite Jeffrey's checkered work history and abuse of his wife, he was still allowed to teach a Bible study class at the local RLDS church in Independence, Missouri. At the time, the rift between fundamentalist Mormonism and liberal Mormonism that Jeffrey had experienced in college was coming to a head. In April of 1984, the RLDS governing body held a worldwide conference where they voted to allow women to be ordained to the priesthood. Jeffrey was horrified and decided to make his Bible study class into a haven for fundamentalist church members. He preached that RLDS was God's only true church and that God would punish any disbelievers. He was a terrifying but charismatic lecturer and drew a class of about 20 loyal students. Two of his most passionate followers were named Cheryl and Dennis Avery. They had grown up in RLDS households and had met during a church weekend retreat for singles. The couple had three daughters, Trina, Rebecca, and Karen. The couple wasn't popular in the church or in general due to their social awkwardness. Another member of the church said of the Averys, quote, I think one of the reasons why the Averys latched onto Jeffrey and Alice was because they were nicer to them than most people in the church. The Averys were not particularly easy to like. They were wimpy, mousy people, and a lot of members simply avoided them, end quote. However, the Averys had something in common with the Lundgrens. They hated how liberal the church was becoming and even thought that Satan could be corrupting the mind of Joseph Smith's descendants. But even they were challenged when Jeffrey made a startling claim in class. Jesus Christ and God were one and the same. Jeffrey wasn't referring to the Holy Trinity, which in the Catholic tradition suggests that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are distinct but made of the same essence. He meant they were indistinct from each other. Part of what made that claim so disturbing to RLDS members was that Jesus Christ and God had appeared together to Joseph Smith in a vision. So essentially, Jeffrey was calling Joseph Smith a liar. 
Jeffrey said that he had unearthed different accounts of Smith's vision that supported what he was saying, but church elders were nevertheless appalled and discontinued his class. Jeffrey was so sure that he was right that he refused to apologize for his assertion and instead moved the class to his home. He was followed only by his most dedicated students, including Dennis and Cheryl Avery and Dennis and Tanya Patrick. Jeffrey then had another vision. This one involved his student, Dennis Patrick. He claimed that he and Dennis were walking along a path and Jeffrey was given a set of gold plates, different than the ones that Joseph Smith had been given in his vision. Jeffrey brought the plates to Wallace B. Smith, the current head of the church, but God told him that the RLDS church had gone astray and could not help him translate the plates. Jeffrey continued on his search for a way to translate the plates, even when Dennis Patrick tried to take them from him. Jeffrey interpreted the vision like this, quote, I think it means that God wants me to bring forth some new revelation. I think it means that Wallace B. Smith is a fallen prophet and is leading the church to destruction. I think it means that Dennis Patrick will try to stop me from accomplishing my task because he will be more worried about winning the glory of the world than the glory of God." End quote. Jeffrey shared his entire vision with Alice and then with his followers, though he left out the part about Dennis Patrick's betrayal when he preached this in class. They didn't think it was so strange because as Tanya Patrick put it, quote, if you had gone to any Wednesday night prayer service that week, you probably would have seen someone stand up and talk about how God had inspired them to say something or shown them a vision, end quote. Jeffrey became obsessed with the vision, doing everything he could to become worthy of receiving the new revelation that God was going to give him. One day during a scripture study, he thought he had found a passage in the Book of Mormon that told him what to do next. It read, quote, for this cause I gave unto you the commandment, that you should go to the Ohio, and there I will give unto you my law, and there you shall be endowed with power from on high. And from thence, whosoever I will, shall go forth among all nations, and it shall be told them what they shall do." End quote. Although God had originally given this order to go to Ohio to Joseph Smith, Jeffrey was so self-important that he thought God was talking directly to him. And as if God had planned it, Alice noticed an advertisement in the church newsletter for volunteers to go work as tour guides at the Kirtland Temple in Ohio, where Jeffrey allegedly cured his old friend Jim. The position was unpaid, but the church would cover housing and utilities. It was like a miracle. Jeffrey told the members of his class, and they threw the Lundgrens a going-away party. Cheryl and Dennis Avery were thrilled for them, and Cheryl told Jeffrey, quote, This is so exciting. You've got to tell us what you find there, end quote. Jeffrey was convinced that everything else in his life had been leading up to this move, saying, quote, The Lord had chosen me, me, for a great mission. I truly believed that, and I saw this as a new adventure, a new start. We were going down God's path, and I wasn't going to let him down. I was going to do whatever God commanded, end quote. Jeffrey and Alice Lundgren, along with their four children, arrived in Kirtland, Ohio, on August 19, 1984. They moved into the church-provided housing, which was directly next door to the beautiful Kirtland Temple. Jeffrey began his training as a tour guide of the temple just a day after his family's arrival in Kirtland. His eagerness so impressed the head of the temple staff that Jeffrey was put in charge of the financial records of the temple, in addition to his tour duties. Jeffrey would oversee the offerings left at the temple and the sales at the visitor center, which usually amounted to about $20,000 a year. 
Although Jeffrey was well-respected at the temple, they weren't paying him anything, and the family was struggling to survive. Around that same time, Jeffrey's old Navy buddy, Kevin Curry, the one he had converted to Mormonism, arrived for a visit. Jeffrey told Kevin about an amazing discovery he'd made in the Book of Mormon. There was a certain passage that said a prophet would help usher in Zion in independence. That's why Joseph Smith had moved his followers there. But Jeffrey thought that men had added in that passage later. The real location of Zion was in Kirtland, Ohio. Kevin believed what Jeffrey told him and started visiting Jeffrey whenever he could. But Jeffrey didn't have the high opinion of Kevin that Kevin had of him. He said, quote, Kevin wasn't that much different from all the others who eventually joined my group. They were all drawn to me because there was something lacking in their own personalities and lives. They wanted me to provide it for them. They were weak. I was strong. I was their host, end quote. In January of 1985, Kevin became the first person to move into the Lundgren home in order to be closer to Jeffrey and learn from him. He also agreed to hand over his entire paycheck every month directly to Jeffrey. Rather than being thankful, Jeffrey used the opportunity to exploit Kevin further. Soon, Kevin was doing all the household chores, in addition to being the only one in the household with a paying job. Jeffrey also began to take more people under his wing, including Sharon Blunchley and Danny Kraft, both interns at the Kirtland Temple. Neither of them knew anyone in town, and both were lonely. Jeffrey saw them as perfect targets. Like most cult leaders, Jeffrey was skilled at identifying people's vulnerabilities so that he could exploit them. In the fall of 1985, Jeffrey was asked to teach an adult Sunday school class at the temple. He used the opportunity to talk about a new method for analyzing scripture that he had learned called chiasmus. Jeffrey claimed to have invented chiasmus, but he had actually heard about it from other people. Chiasmus is based on the belief that God created mankind in his mirror image. So you should study the Bible by looking for phrases that mirror each other. Whatever is between the two mirroring phrases is the truth. For example, a section of Isaiah chapter 55 reads in one line, Neither are your ways my ways. Then in the next line, For as the heavens are higher than the earth. Then in the next line, So are my ways higher than your ways. The first and last lines are similar. So the true message of this section is the middle line, which reads, For as the heavens are higher than the earth. The other lines were written by men, while the center line was written by God. Jeffrey used chiasmus to give the impression that he had a secret to interpreting scripture that no one else knew, and many members of the church ate it up. A friend at the time recalled, quote, Jeff had this magnetism about him. He never expressed any doubts, and when he said something, it was like the Lord himself had said it, end quote. Everything was going well for Jeffrey and his family. Jeffrey was enjoying giving tours and studying scripture, and Kevin and Sharon were supporting them financially. Jeffrey was still demanding sexual acts from Alice that made her uncomfortable, but by this point she had accepted that he really was the prophet that had been foretold, so she no longer felt she could question him. For the next year and a half, the Lundgrens continued in relative happiness. Jeffrey got so into study of chiasmus that he used it to completely reinterpret the entire Bible. He crossed out anything that wasn't surrounded by mirror phrases, believing that everything that remained was the true word of God. More and more people began to notice Jeffrey and believe in him, especially RLDS fundamentalists. Jeffrey capitalized on their belief. 
presenting himself as the conservative option to people who thought the church was becoming too liberal, he even began to consider that the special purpose that God had in store for him was to lead a fundamentalist revolt, ousting Wallace B. Smith from the church leadership and installing himself. He began teaching additional classes at his home, drawing not just Kevin and former interns Sharon and Daniel, but other people who had met him at church or during his tours of the temple. By the fall of 1986, both Kevin Curry and another man named Richard Olson were living in the Lundgren house, while Danny and Sharon lived across the street. They had all become disciples of Jeffrey. Jeffrey continued to study the Bible using chiasmus. Even though he had moved to Kirtland like God told him to, he felt he was still missing some sort of key that would truly unlock his power and allow him to become the prophet he was meant to be. The key came in the form of another alleged vision. Jeffrey claimed that he was visited by Joseph Smith, who explained to him that God had created eight seers at the beginning of time. These men were immortal, but wouldn't know that they were immortal or what their role was until God needed them. If you're thinking that sounds like the plot of a movie called Highlander, you're correct. The movie was released in 1986, and Jeffrey and Alice admitted to being so obsessed with it that they saw it seven times in one weekend. But Jeffrey still claimed that his story was true. In fact, he was the last of these immortal seers or prophets. Through all of Jeffrey's hard work, he had finally become worthy of his role. So now God was revealing his true self to him. As he put it, quote, I was finally at the point where it could happen, where Joseph Smith could turn the role of the prophet over to me so that the scriptures could be fulfilled, end quote. It was the last piece of a dangerous puzzle. Jeffrey had begun to amass his followers and now believed that he was God's last prophet on earth. He alone could bring about Zion in Kirtland. Next week, we'll discuss how Jeffrey Lundgren would use this supposed revelation to gather even more disciples, gain complete control over the members of his cult, and eventually convince them to commit murder on his behalf. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with the second part of our episode next Tuesday. Some of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy Cults, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. You can find Cults and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Claire Epstein and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.